Welcome to BDO's Health and Life Sciences Rx podcast, hosted by BDO's Health and Life Sciences leaders. Learn more about the trends disrupting health and life sciences and how companies can survive in an ever-changing landscape. The final panel is choosing the right biotech exit strategy. And, um, well, we've seen IPOs, M&As, partnerships, licensing agreements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're just a huge, there's a varied number of opportunities for biotech companies out there. In this session, we've got a great panel that, that are going to discuss all the, the, uh, the exits and, and growth opportunities and what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, and what the specific company's needs are. So we're going to cover these key challenges, roadblocks, through some real-life examples and lessons learned. Moderating this panel is my colleague Todd Berry, who is the co-leader of our National Life Sciences Practice, and he's joined by Claudia Mitchell, the Chief Operating Officer of Universal Cells, a Seattle-based biotech and an Astellas company. Lindsay A. Rosenwald, Chairman, President, and Chief Executive Officer of Fortress Biotech, who also sits on the board of numerous companies in the industry. And lastly, Chris Whirling, a partner at McDermott Will Emery and the co-chair of the firm's life sciences practice. So let's get the, the conversation started. All right, well, welcome um, to our esteemed uh, panelists. And uh, uh, I think what we're gonna try and do is keep this to sort of 45 minutes. We've got, we do have lunch. Uh, sort of waiting in the wings, so we'll uh, we'll move it along. Um, as uh, as Stephen said, really, what the topic is today is to talk about exits. There are you know various forms of exits that you can um, uh, think of in terms of M and A and IPO. I, for one, don't believe that an IPO is <coughs> necessarily an exit. But um, and Lindsay, I know you've got you've got a um, <coughs> a unique sort of platform that you've. You've got it at one of your companies, and so I'd love to hear that. But I think the, the first question is really pretty, pretty basic, so we just want to um, ease into this, um, and then we'll talk about risks and alternative, uh, alternative strategies uh, as we get on into it. But generally uh, speaking, in the, in, uh, in, fr from your different perspectives, um, <clears throat> what have you seen and you know, what, are your, what are the trends in terms of you know, typical exits today? And then maybe take us to you know what you what you think the trends are going forward. Sure. So I guess it depends on on the stage of development of the company. Uh, most exits are sales to large pharma and large biotech companies. Uh, we certainly have never viewed an IPO as an exit. I guess if you're a VC and a company goes public, then then that could be an exit if you're not a controlling shareholder. Uh, but for for operators like us and, and controlling shareholders or larger shareholders that sit on the boards, the IPO is just another funding mechanism and, and not at all an exit. Okay. Chris? Yeah, and, and in that sale to a large pharma, even many of those transactions are not full exits. It's true. In that, um, in it, my work as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in the biotech and pharma industry, we're frequently uh, selling a product where some amount of cash is received on, on the closing date, but there's hundreds of millions of dollars that is paid in the back end. So even that level of exit on a closing date is not a true exit because you need to monitor that product development through clinical, through commercial launch for three, five, 10 years 
uh, to get that full cash. So I think a theme that you will hear from the panel is that uh, these are all really iterations of different financing events to get extraordinarily costly therapies out to patients that need them. I, I agree that it's not an exit that, you know, it's over and done. But again, from an operator's standpoint, the good news is when you sell something, even with a back end and things like that, at least for you, the hard part is over. Now it's up to them. You know, as a, as a founder of a biotech company who recently exited uh, throughout the life uh, of our company as an independent company, my thoughts were uh, choosing between uh, M&A and IPO as an exit as a founder and CEO. And uh, I did exit. I still remain. I did that uh, because I do believe in, uh, in the product that we were developing and I wanted to stay. But it was definitely an exit for us and all employees did uh, um, cash out their stock options. So it was an exit for everybody in the company. Financial exit. But everybody remained. That was the, also the, the interesting part. Uh, we kept all our employees. Yeah. And so uh, there are a myriad of different avenues we can go down, you know, uh, whether it's um, selling to a strategic, to a financial buyer, IPO, M&A, license, milestone, et cetera. And so I think we all know <clears throat> that things change in this industry, if that's one constant that's changed uh, in the industry. And, and so uh, when you think of uh, starting out in the lab, and getting it through preclinical, clinical, and you know, eventually to, to launch. There's a lot of stuff that happens there. There's regulatory environment, there's market environment, there's um, data coming out of the lab, and it changes, right? So, um, and, and so I'm sure there's an evolution of, well, wh what, what, is the, what is the best strategy to choose to exit, exit right? And so how do those dynamics affect <clears throat> your reasoning or your, 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 your ability to choose which, which exit? How do you choose? Well, again, from, from my perspective, my exits have always been sales to large farm and large biotech. And, and what we look for, first, hire a banker, see if, what level of interest there is. You know, it's two things you look for, the highest price, but you're also looking, especially if there's going to be a back end, the, the company that's most likely to, to do the best job. So for instance, when we sold Cougar to J&J, we thought the drug would be a seven, $800 million a year drug. J&J uh, wasn't the highest bidder, but they, had a, um, they knew the drug well, and, and we felt they would do the best job selling it. Last quarter for them, the drug sold a billion dollars in just a quarter. So you know that made a big difference. And what, <clears throat> what precipitated that, that sort of change? In what? In, in, the, in the difference in the, uh, in the valuation? You know what, when you talk to the, um, two things. Number one, when you talk to the management, they understood the market better. The, uh, you know, it's a prostate cancer drug. They, they had a, a good presence there. And also, they were smart enough to really want to keep the senior management. You know, a lot of times when you sell a drug to a big company, they'll take the drug and get rid of you. Other times, they want people to stay because they're much closer to it. And they really wanted these people to stay. They really were making a big commitment to the program. And that was really important to us. For me, choosing the, the right uh, exit, always it's, it's a matter of a combination. It's a timely thing. It's a combination at a certain point of time, how your internal um, 
internal aspects of a company, where are you, uh, you're at and uh, your development uh, combined to the, the stages in the, in the market. So for example, how's the M&A market? How's the IPO uh, window? Is that open or not? So it's always a combination. Sometimes, uh, and, and you have to be fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. So your, your product or you, 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 you have to be at, a, at an inflection point that allows you to be looking for an exit at the time when either the IPO um, window is open or the M&A market is, is um, very uh, uh, hot. So for us, it was a, a very, uh, the decision to sell was uh, because we were at an inflection point where we either would raise more capital and then further dilute and have to wait uh, a number of years before we could realize the same gains um, uh, that we were going to realize at that sale. So we sold early. Our company was only four and a half years old, uh, but it was the right time because uh, we would then, if we hadn't sold at that point, we would have to raise capital, take all the risk. And we, we made the calculation that by uh, the, the probability of us having the same time of uh, return after the new raise and taking all the risk, uh, was uh, we, we would only happen if we everything went really well. So uh, we made the decision, and uh, it was uh, I, I truly believe it was the right decision. My investors made thirty x, which is a very rare uh, uh, and that very three high zero? three zero yeah Fantastic. three zero. Yeah. So we don't usually see that in biotech. We see that a lot in tech, but uh, not in biotech. So it was the right time. And what what was the clinical inflection point? Curious that you were. We were about pre to... we were preclinical. Yeah. We were okay. preclinical. So you were about to commence a phase so, one, or so we were about to uh, start preclinical studies, and then we had uh, the next inflection point would be IND submission first in humans proof of proof of concept. So it would take many years, and that that was really where the biggest risk was. Yeah. So uh, so we decided, okay, well, let's do that while the appetite for our technology is very high, and we we didn't have to uh, have any any uh, big proof. We didn't have talk studies. We only have the 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 mouse proof of concept of our technology. So very early stage. So so most. Of, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say just one other question. And your and the acquirer was Astellas Pharma. Astellas, yeah. So the second largest uh, Japanese biotech, and our technology just to to uh, to place that in context is uh, we have uh, we develop pluripotent stem cells that uh, are universally compatible, so the cells are not rejected. So this is a, a platform that really enables cell therapy products. So it can be very widely used. So it could be the holy grail of cell therapies. So this is. Uh, we had something uh, very, uh, very with great potential, unproven still, but in the clinic. Uh, but uh, so the market was really um, looking for 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 this kind of thing. We were at the right time uh, having this asset there, so it, it married well. So sometimes you have technologies that are great, but you just are not in the, uh, the, uh, the appetite and the market is not there for you. So, so it is a combination between internal factors and external factors. 
I was going to say, you know, uh, it's remarkable. And, you know, I'm sure the next time you're doing a startup, let us all know. We'd all love to invest. Okay? Don't, don't forget us. Don't forget us. Uh, and um, to, maybe to, to tail off your point, uh, you were actually a lucky one in 2018 because 2018 was not a big year for, for exits. Um, if you look at total transaction volume in 2018, the Shire, and I'm talking about across all M&A activity within biotech pharma, the Shire Takeda transaction um, was about 50% of the total transaction volume. So I, I, I think we know that the cause of the, uh, the, the market um, kind of stagnation uh, in M&A in 2018 was the simple fact that uh, stock prices were too high. Um, I, Lindsay would be interested in your comment on that, but you know, people would like to bring some of these technologies into the larger pharmas, but the cost has to be right. And right, the, the drug companies are very sophisticated. And, and for instance, uh, it was only after Celgene came down did Bristol Myers buy them for 70, 80, whatever the number is. Uh, they've been looking at it seriously for a couple of years, but they felt the price was too high, is my understanding. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen a lot of M&A activity already this year. Loxo was just acquired. For eight billion after the stock had come way down, so they're very price. You know, they they like must have room somewhere with every target and what they're willing to pay. Yeah, the pricing was high, and I think people saw that it was a little bit of a bubble caused by interest rate and kind of the uh, effect of the, the uh, Google and Amazon stock right. price just pulling up the overall market. Um, I don't think 2018 the the public markets really priced in some of the reimbursement risk that's currently out there um, and we'll probably be hearing more about in the coming months. Um, I don't think the public markets, you know, just priced in general risk very accurately. And I think the, the pharma yeah. executives knew that. So Just like they say in the stock market in general, when insiders are buying, that's a great sign. When insiders are selling, that's a bad sign in general. It's the same thing for development stage biotech and, and pharmas, which is when there's a lot of M&A activity after prices have come down. That tells you the bottom has probably come in, and we've probably seen, seen the bottom there. So I think there'll be a lot of uh, activity this year. Certainly at J.P. Morgan, you know, our companies must have had 120 different meetings with companies, and uh, they're all very uh, acquisitive right now. So I guess to, just to flip it here a little bit, um, it, it just talk, I mean, if you look at sort of where the money's gone, you know, oncology, you know, is, continues to get its, more of its fair share of money, whether it's venture capital or, um, uh, or R&D spend, if you will. Um, but uh, just from your perspective, where, where, where is the money going um, maybe in the future? What are the, what are the sort of the new technologies, if you will, that... Um, we can sure. expect to see uh, more activity in the investment community. So first off, if you go back 20 or 25 years, pharma companies did their own research. Today, there's much less of that, and they're relying on entrepreneurs to set up the companies, and then they, they'll buy what they think has, has value. So most entrepreneurs are not going to develop drugs that have you know billion-dollar costs to develop because it's too much money. Uh, what's, what's really hot right now are rare diseases and gene therapies, because they command premium pricing, because they're truly meeting an unmet medical need, and they're pretty cheap to develop. You know, you don't have to do large clinical trials. Gene therapy, you can get approved with 10 or 12 patients if it's really viable. Uh, so that's where entrepreneurs are going. 
but because the pricing is so premium that the big companies, it's amazing what they'll, these little things they'll buy on, on five or six patients worth of data. Um, you know, last year, uh, a Chinese company had a CAR-T for uh, multi-myeloma, the CAR being uh, BCMA, and on a pretty small clinical trial, J&J ponied up $300 million pretty quickly and, and, uh, and a huge back end. So, uh, and that's very refractory multiple myeloma. So, again, it, doesn't, it has to be uh, unmet medical need. If it's rare disease, anything that's cheap to develop, that's where the entrepreneurs are going to look. And more and more big pharma is relying on the entrepreneurs as their uh, clinical stage pipeline. At least that's, that's how I see it. Yeah, no, I totally agree on the, the gene and cell therapy uh, being becoming, you know, I've been in gene and cell therapy since the 90s, and, uh, and it's uh, now, it was always in the fringe, and now hearing what's going on, and uh, it's really, uh, I think we're ready for prime time, and um, and what kind of shocked me, uh, because, you know, I've always uh, been involved in, in looking at companies that are developing rare uh, disease drugs, gene therapy for rare diseases. And uh, I was uh, listening to, to Novartis uh, CEO say that um, he's expecting the SMA drug to be a blockbuster. And I was like... Wow, and of course he's pricing it at four at four million dollars. But even though it, there aren't that many SMA patients, and so hearing that uh, ultra rare disease can have a blockbuster drug was was something that kind of it really surprised me. Mm -hmm. But I think that you know it's going to all come uh, down to to pricing, and always uh, could, uh, you know I. We were during in, in uh, uh, during our choice of uh, where we were going, and in, in, uh, uh, with our technology and universal cells, we had been thinking about uh, rare hematological diseases that have 30 patients a year, and uh, we were really trying uh, to to find a, a justification: to how can we make money and survive in, with a market like that? But apparently, this is no longer a, a, an issue, and we see a lot of companies uh, with a viable business model uh, with ultra-rare diseases. So that has shifted. In a yeah, that was amazing. They said they'll charge between four and five million. The pushback is that uh, you know probably the way it's going to work is it's going to be phased over time as long as the, the, the patient continues to do well. So it's probably phased out over, paid over three to 10 years is my guess. But they got to incentivize companies and people to take these risks. Otherwise, there'll be no uh, risk taking. And like you said, it's small numbers of patients that uh, if you can't get a premium, why, you know, it's not a charity, this business. No. Not intentionally, anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we're seeing the money go into different types of drug discovery tools. Um, uh, some of the flow we're seeing through the McDermott deals uh, that we're involved in, um, including you know, kind of uh, uses of artificial intelligence and different types of things that in the past we wouldn't really consider a, a drug deal, but uh, the use of, of uh, databases, artificial intelligence to discover drugs differently is something that we see equal appetite from large pharmas for that technology as we see for the new therapeutic uh, candidate. So uh, money is going into that. I don't think that that money is necessarily being diverted from new therapeutic candidates, but some of it's coming from newer investors in life science 
and others are just allocating portions of their portfolio um, in that area. It's an extraordinarily hot area right now. Uh, yeah, and we have Microsoft, Google, uh, <coughs> Amazon, Amazon. And in this space too. So. So, so it's interesting. So, do you do you think the machine learning, data analytics, those sort of tools? I mean, because I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, if if you look at the time horizon from you know the lab to you know launching a product, I think it hasn't really changed much uh, for a long period of time. I think it still costs as much. Um, so, do you think that'll these new tools and, and uh, uh, technologies will will change that? Will shorten the window and it certainly will change the discovery process and make it shorter and more efficient, but that's not where the bulk, I, so far as I understand, that's not where the bulk of the cost is. The bulk is the, is the clinical trial cost yeah. and, and the time. Uh, I don't see, I, I think eventually technology will be there that you'll be able to do fewer patients and, and uh, because preclinically you'll have better enabled the characterization of any toxicities and, and things like that, but I don't see that happening soon. I think Again, I'm not a, a uh, economist, and I'm certainly not, you know, looking at the whole industry. But I think certainly in our companies, costs keep going up year after year, and and the FDA gets more and more, not less rigorous. So that's the bulk of, I think, the the overhead in this business, the cost in this business. And I, and we're seeing some technologies that are trying to hit that cost, you know, head on. The 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 cost of doing clinical trials. And uh, you know, kind of mining data that already exists to uh, to design the drug for a clinical trial, um, and using as much of that information that already exists in a database of oncology patients or a database of uh, rare disease patients' history um, for that, you know, to specifically kind of try to limit down the number of participants that are needed in a clinical trial to get it through FDA. I mean, that's the that's the eventual goal here. I agree with Lindsay that that's still many years away <laughs> towards achieving success in that, but that's the goal in that kind of hot technology right now. So. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think it's a few years away. And, and I also think that there will be a lot of uh, the data mining, the clinical data mining, mm. getting uh, faster to clinical endpoints and get better, uh, uh, meaning, more meaningful uh, primary endpoints, and uh, that could maybe help accelerate the drug development pro uh, process, have some disrupted technologies there with data mining, yeah. more predictive, better clinical trial designs. Lindsay, from your perspective, <coughs> I'd be curious to hear kind of what's, what are some of the hot like therapeutic areas aside from oncology right now? Uh, you know, um, the way we work, we don't really start with what diseases we want to go after. What we look for, we're, we're bottom fishers, we're not venture capitalists, so we look for drugs that really are already probably working in humans or almost totally de-risked uh, as much as can be and have fallen through the crack, cracks because we don't really like to pay up for these drugs. Mm. And so we let the market, we, we don't worry about, we know what we won't do. Like I said, we're not going to go after, you know, uh, a drug where you need you know, 10,000 patients worth of clinical data. It's got to be something where, for a relatively small investment, you can dress it up for, for a big pharma company. So, again, most of what we're seeing is rare diseases, gene therapy, oncology. If you 
look at a pie chart of the industry today of the drugs that are in the clinic, half it's oncology. And, and rare diseases is, is another big slice. So, uh, and that's where, where we fish. It, the individual diseases, uh, we got 15, 16 people working full time. That's all they do is, is focus in those areas. But I, you know, off, off the top of my head, I can't think about it. Certainly neurologic diseases uh, is has is is been a horrible area for drug development. Most, most neurologic diseases are not well treated and there is a lot of discovery and interesting drugs and development, but not many in the clinic. And, and like I said, we're gonna look for stuff that's in the clinic that's just falling through the cracks. So for instance, we have a drug for a form of bubble boy disease that we license out of St. Jude this is, again, it's a risky business, full disclosure, but uh, they've treated 13 children that don't have an immune system, and, and uh, it looks like they may be curing every one of these kids. And we were able to license that on, on, on good terms because, you know, it's a small market of patients, and, and I think we licensed it before Novartis came out with what they're charging. Um, but if you cure these kids, you're entitled to a fair, fair return. So again, we're driven by data and, and unmet medical need. Uh, we don't start looking for every drug in, in a certain category. Interesting. Okay. Um, so earlier on, I think we said, uh, um, and I hate to turn this into sort of what keeps you up at night, right? But, mm -hmm. but what keeps you up at night, right? Um, and so if you think about uh, just risks and uncertainties and, you know, talked a little bit about them earlier, mm -hmm. whether it's regulatory or market risk or, you know, scientific, what's coming out of the lab, um, geopolitical, whatever you want, you know, yeah. whatever your poison is. How does, how does the risk, and what do you view the risks and uncertainties um, that most sort of affect, you know, valuation and deal flow? Sure. So what keeps me up at night is it's simple. It's, it's, it's politics. It's people who don't understand the risk-reward in this business being in charge. So, so uh, I don't think people understand that between 85 and 90% of all prescriptions written in this country are for generic drugs, which are available relatively very cheaply. So for instance, years ago, you know, I've, I've done a lot of lobbying over the years for, for the biotech industry. So when Ted Kennedy was the senior Democrat in the Senate for, for healthcare, I had to get to know Ted Kennedy pretty well. And, and so we were pretty good friends. And he used to say to me, you know, how are we going to pay for these drugs? And what are you doing? You're going to bankrupt us. So I said, let me ask you something, Senator. Uh, every year, the Defense Department budget goes up, right? Every year it goes up. I said, and, and it's important. We need defense. And, and yet, you know what? It never goes down. It only goes up. I said, the drug business is different. Let's take, back then the hot drug was, you know, the statins. It was like a $20 billion class of drugs 10 or 15 years ago. And, and I said, you know, here's a drug that, you know, there's lots of them out there, spent billions developing them, but they are having an unbelievable effect in reducing cardiovascular disease in this country. And, you know, all the sales, when you add up all the sales for all the statin drugs before they went generic, and I think now they're probably all generic, was well over, probably well over 100 or 200 billion dollars. I said, but now they're going generic and you can buy them at Walmart for $4 a month. I'm on the same uh, plane as you, Lindsay. I, I worry a little, I opened up the journal this morning and it's got the uh, Bluebird Bio uh, article about them planning to charge 2.4 million for their rare blood disease drug and I, I just kind of cringe when I see that because that's going to get a gut reaction from 
our current president or certain politicians who are who in their mind they think a drug could <coughs> cost sixty dollars because that's what they see as their as their uh, copayment when they pick it up at CVS or Walgreens. Uh, they don't see that underneath they've had people negotiate that price for them, that their employer is paying a portion of it. And so the delta between $60 and $2.4 million is mm -hmm. so dramatic. And they don't understand that that's a rare blood disease that uh, is, you know, has 10,000 patients a year. And it, uh, uh, the $2.4 million cost is saving, uh, is saving $5 million of lifetime right. expense for the patient. And and letting a patient live who otherwise would have had to go, go through, you know, annual or biannual transfusions. Right. It's like when when Gilead, you know, put out the Hep C, hepatitis C drug, yeah. and they were charging eighty thousand list price. People went nuts. But these were the first patients, the early adopters, were the ones that were waiting for a transplant or about to die. Uh, the average Hep C patient over a lifetime cost society hundreds of thousands of dollars, and for eighty grand you can cure them. So as long as as long as industry uh, manages the investment, the, the, the cost that the government is spent. So in other words, they do it through PBNs, they do it through insurance companies, then you can reason with the payers and, you know, I think it'll be fine. Yeah, and it's a, a little bit, uh, it's, it's, it's very, it also keeps me at night because it has a ripple <coughs> effect through, uh, not only for those who are uh, developing late stage uh, drugs, but it will have, it will affect the entire industry. And people are talking about drug price, but uh, people forget that healthcare costs are not only uh, drug price, there is a lot of inefficiency in the system and nobody's talking about that. So uh, I know it's very complex. Uh, it's easier to, to pinpoint to drug prices because it's one specific thing, but uh, all the, 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 the system is full of uh, inefficiency. So why don't we address that and let the, the, the pharma companies um, uh, keep them viable and keep the, the drug discovery model viable by having so, uh, some high prices drug and, and the majority will be cheap. But keep that uh, the same way. Find the balance there, but focus on the rest because that's also very costly. When you look at the $3.5 trillion spend in healthcare per year, uh, you know, well over a third of it goes into what happens in hospitals. <laughs> and, and uh, I, you know, I think less than a tenth of it goes to pharma biotech. Yes. So, exactly. uh, you know, kind of looking at the inefficiencies in hospitals, the, mm -hmm. the waste in spending in end-of-life care in a hospital setting, uh, it would be a dramatically better place exactly. to, to address cost issues. So, um, you know, curious, you know, value-based contracting is something that is that we had talked about in organizing. I, I think that's something that it, it, it's it's not a, it's not a risk, but it's something new for biotech executives to to just factor in um, and plan for um, and planning for early, you know, well before an exit, planning for. Um, how you're going to create that data throughout the product development lifecycle, I think, is extremely important um, right now, and and that can be an uncertainty if you're not, if the drug companies are not prepping for it, um, and, and planning for that value-based contracting, kind of goes right along with the pricing, pricing issues. But it's something that is evolving with um, 
uh, more power held by the PBMs and a you know these combined CVS Aetna type entities. Um, at some point, they're going to wake up and and really focus on that value based contracting. It'll be accelerated if we have two point four and five million dollar costs for therapies. So, uh, I guess. Uh, as we sort of bring it back towards um, exits, uh, and if the thought is a sale, and it could be an outright sale or you know a big license deal, et cetera. So, when's the right time um, to? And, and maybe there's different circumstances for for this answer, but when's the right time to just start looking for buyers? And how how do you sort of go about that? And and then how do you prepare yourself for? Uh, you know, the scrutiny and the diligence and all that mm -hmm. that you're, you're going to go through. So, for, I mean, we're here. We have tons of meetings for all our different companies. You know, we're willing to sell anything at any time for the right price. So it just has to be, you know, uh, we have to receive a net present value that's at least equal to our net present value. And, and if we have other areas we want to put the capitals, we think we can get a higher N NPV, we'll do it. So I think that's really the answer. Now, on a deal-by-deal -deal basis, there's lots of different timing questions like, okay, I've done the phase two, now I gotta go out and raise $100 million to do two phase threes, or I gotta raise $200 million. You know, it, what's the cost benefit to us? You know, we'll take dilution for that capital. Are we better off giving it to, you know, selling it to a drug company where we'll have less, but we'll spend less and we'll have less dilution? I mean, there's a million variables to go into it and, and uh, there's no simple formula. Uh, so that's how we look at it. Okay. Uh, for me, because uh, I think it's all about uh, being in the right place at the right time, uh, you always have to be prepared. And being prepared is always be talking to potential buyers because you never know when, uh, uh, when the right opportunity is going to come. So be communicating, be engaging, and be uh, scouting who might be the, uh, the potential partners and, uh, and uh, potential acquirers. I, I, uh, for us, for example, uh, we had a, a lot of interest from, uh, from our partners because they knew us very well. So partnership for me is a, a stepping uh, a, a stone before you, you get acquired because these are the people who are uh, really closest to you and know your company and the value of your assets the most. So I, I think that uh, being out there communicating and, uh, and partnering, uh, it's a good um, place to position your a good way to position yourself to become uh, acquired if you that's uh, one of the, the possibilities and I think that you can you you should always be looking at all scenarios so acquisition and while you continue to do your your uh, research and development and maybe do an IPO or uh, further um, so you have to play both scenarios I think all the time you can't concentrate only on one scenario it's too risky well, I tell people that the day they incorporate the company is the right time to start thinking about the exit, really, uh, you know, which is just a theme uh, on what you just said, is you know, really it's a constant iteration of thinking about where will be the right place for this asset once it's being distributed and used in patients. You know, who's the right caretaker for it um, uh, to get it out to, to, to patients? So. Now that's going to change over the life cycle of the product and yeah. exactly what you just said, Claudia. I mean, it's going to be updated based on who the players are, uh, what are the options. Um, you know, it's, it, 
sounds like you never really dreamed that you'd have an exit as early as you did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but that that changes as strategies and uh, different opportunities within the the broader market change. So it really should be thought of from from day one. And uh, it's something to, to be talking to folks in the market uh, about. Um, you know, uh, we were talking about bankers earlier. Um, we have, I, I am a big fan of creating banker relationships early and not signing an engagement letter necessarily, <laughs> but talking with um, smart and connected uh, bankers in the market can help you understand what um, what potential exit opportunities are out there, and what but but more importantly, really what the buyers are looking for in um, in in their candidates uh, at, at at any given time. So constantly kind of communicating with a couple of the bankers that regularly play in your therapeutic area, I think is critical, and understanding what the the market is saying because that that opportunity might come up earlier rather than later or it may impact um, some of your trial design, it may impact some of your um, timing plans, it may impact the financing levels that you, you go and seek. So uh, I, I use bankers as a real tool um, to you know, be communicating with early, and, and they will do that um, uh, so, uh, without uh, uh, any compensation to get in there and help you kind of think through um, think, think through your design and your decisions. Um, I, I really advise people to start talking with them early. I mean, in fact, that's what we do when we, you know, get serious about licensing in a, an asset. You know, we'll reach out to the five or ten companies that are in that space and say, look, if I have an asset like this, you know, and we can de-risk it, is it something you'd be interested in? Where are you guys headed? Where's your business headed? And uh, if they say, you know, they'll, they'll let us know, well, we, we're working on something that's way beyond that, forget about it, we're not gonna bother, or you'll never get reimbursed for it, because they know their business. They, like you said, you go to the people know. And that is one of the biggest de-risking steps we have, is the worst thing is to spend tens of millions yeah. of dollars on an asset, and then go to, when it works, go to sell it, and it's like, well, we don't want it. Right. So uh, you gotta do your homework. That's what my mother used to tell me. And she was right, she was right. <laughs> she was right, but I didn't find out too much later. <laughs> Um, so maybe, and, and I guess we're, we're sort of getting near the end here, but um, just because I always thought, I thought this was an interesting question. So flip it now, um, and you're not the company, you're the investor, right? So you've invested early, um, and you know, you're not to product yet, you, who knows if you're mm -hmm. able to get there. But so what, what do you think about, hey, when am I gonna get a return on my investment? When, when should you start really thinking about, obviously day one, you're, mm -hmm. you're looking to get one, but when, when should you start maybe getting anxious about it or you know, picking up the phone and calling people? So I mean, if you're relatively sophisticated when you go to make the investment, assuming you're a passive investor and somebody's given you a pitch, uh, you know, what's the stage of development? What's the milestone where, where you know, there'll be a big increase in valuation with a chance, a good chance for an exit? And then you map that out, you know, the, 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 uh, whoever's selling you the deal or the CEO or whoever should be able to give you, you know, quarter by quarter, once the money comes in, this is where we're going to be, and this is the exit right there. And then, you know, stay in touch with the company, make sure they're hitting those milestones. Yeah, no, I agree. Those investors, they more than 
than us uh, founders. They are thinking about the exit uh, all the time. And, and uh, I found that it was uh, uh, very important to, to keep the relationship and talking to them all the time and uh, quarterly sending newsletters and, and getting input from them as well. You know, it's a lot like, at least from my perspective, playing golf or, or going to Vegas and gambling. If you don't get the occasional 30 to 1 or the occasional good drive or the occasional you know, payoff at, at the roulette wheel, you don't go back. And so if they kill off the, the 30 to 1s, nobody's in the business. And, and uh, that's how I simplify it in my mind. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, we, we see investors with ranges of expectations, but uh, many investors in this market have that flexibility. They understand that we're going to set timelines, they're going to be missed, or we're going to shift therapeutic programs entirely. <laughs> you know, it's, it's called development work because you're doing that work to 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 see what happens out of uh, you know the molecule or the asset, and it's going to take shifts and turns and things like that. So uh, we have, we just uh, we last year we sold an ADHD product to Atsuka Pharmaceuticals, uh, which uh, was under development for. Uh, Definitely, I think ten years longer than the initial investors uh, thought it would be, but um, the end result was good, um, and the investors obviously were thinking about an exit much earlier, and they had some blue chip investors, including the Novartis fund. Uh, but but there was a twist and turn, and this great product came out of one of those twists and turns. So investors in this industry have that flexibility; they understand that there's going to be things that are longer longer out there, it's going to decrease their IRR, but they're going to offset it with um, IRRs from, um, from uh, earlier exits than expected. Thank you for all our panelists for taking the time out to spend, uh, to spend with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BDO's Health and Life Sciences Rx podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you'll visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also subscribe to BDO's Health and Life Sciences Rx blog by visiting bdo.com slash blogs slash health and life sciences slash subscribe.